apostles were bold, and even when threatened with prison or worse, they didn't stop telling people about Jesus. But the religious leaders couldn't handle it, and in Acts 5, they rounded up the apostles again and were trying to figure out what to do. Here's Pastor David with more. And Gamaliel's advice to them is, leave them alone, because if it's successful, then it was of God, and you'll be fighting against him, and if it's not successful, it means it wasn't of God, Okay. Leave them alone. Now, here's what the guys, here's what the rest of Sanhedrin, how they responded to that. It says, and they agreed with him. This is verse 40. And they agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they agreed with Gamaliel. Sort of, right? Sort of. Because Gamaliel said, Leave them alone. You know, don't, don't mess with these guys. Don't touch them. You might be fighting against God. But they let them go, but with a beat down. Okay? Beat down and then let go. Not death. To be fair, not death, but a beat down. Some kind of compromise, right? But here's the thing. If they really had believed what Gamaliel said, that they might be fighting against God, they wouldn't have beaten them. These are double-minded guys. They agree, yet they still beat these guys. And by the way, this was not a, a nice, you know, little spanking. This was likely 40 lashes minus one with a whip, okay? 40 lashes minus one. In Deuteronomy, we see the law on whipping people, and it's in the 25th chapter, the third verse says, 40 blows he may give him and no more, lest he should exceed this and beat him with many blows above these, and your brother be humiliated in your sight. So that's the law that the Jewish people um, were going under when they whipped somebody. Okay, when they whip somebody. And these guys would have gotten it. Paul the Apostle actually describes for us that five times, five times the Jews had given him 40 lashes minus one. So that's the punishment that these guys likely endured. That's the punishment that these guys likely endured. And how do they react? How do the apostles react? Let's look and see. The next verse. This is verse 41. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Now, if you get a beating like the one that these guys received, what are the chances that your reaction is going to be rejoicing? Zero sound about right? We don't rejoice when we get beat down, but these guys did. These guys were slapping each other. Well, they probably weren't slapping each other on the back. That would have, <laughs> that would have been rough, you know. Um, but these guys were happy. Their reaction to being beaten and humiliated and, and put to shame was joy. Now, I want you to think about something. This is, this is important. This is important. We've talked about evidence today a little bit, and I want to just bring you a little piece of evidence, okay? I want you to think about this. These guys, the basis of their faith, one of the, one of the foundations on which their faith stands is the idea that Jesus rose from the dead, okay? If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, Christianity is nonsense. It's nonsense. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, these men, these leaders of the Jews were right, to put him to death because he was claiming to be God. And the apostles would be wrong. And here's the thing. 
The apostles weren't claiming that they believed Jesus rose from the dead based on faith. They were saying they saw him alive after he was dead, hung out with him, touched him, ate with him. That's what they were saying. Remember, the the earliest Christians, their faith was not faith in the same way your faith is. You believe having not seen based on evidence and some faith. These guys didn't need any faith to believe in the resurrection. They claimed they had seen it. Now think about this. When the whip comes out, if it's not true, if you did not see him alive from the dead, and all you would have to do is say, we didn't really see him alive, and no one was going to whip you, I think that's what you do. And as the beatings came, boom, boom, right? Five beatings in, and you know there's 34 left. You're going to say, okay, okay. Didn't see him alive after he was dead, right? If it's a lie, if it's a conspiracy, it breaks up when the beatings start. That's how they work. That's how they work. But they didn't. And here's the thing that's even more interesting. They never did. Most of these guys eventually were killed. Most of them eventually were murdered, were put to death. And none of them ever retracted, ever retracted their statement that they had seen Jesus alive after he was dead. Now, when you talk about evidence, you put something in front of a jury, that's strong evidence. That's strong evidence. These people went to their deaths. They were willing to be beat, and they were rejoicing about it. Happy about it. Why? Why were they happy about it? Because they were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. This wasn't a beating that they took because they had done something wrong. They took this beating for being associated with Christ, and they were excited about the prospect of suffering for him because of their love for him, because of his love for them. That's powerful. That's powerful. These guys were rejoicing. Let's look at the next verse. It says, And daily in the temple and in every house they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Where did they go? Back to the temple. These guys had just beaten them. These guys were frothing at the mouth, ripped in half in the heart, angry at them for teaching about Jesus. They beat them and said, don't speak about this guy. And where did they go? To the temple. When? Every single day. And they kept preaching the name of Jesus. That's courage. That's courage. These guys were fearless. These guys were fearless. Now that's the end of the chapter, the fifth chapter of Acts. We have 23 left. Yeah. I just have a couple points I want to make. Now, you know that means we got 20 more minutes, so just relax. Um, but we are done with the fifth chapter. Hey, I know it's taken a while to get through Acts. And you know what? We're going to stay in it until God's told us everything he wants to tell us. Okay? Because we're trying to learn what it means to be the church. And it might take a little time. Things that are worth it often do. But here's a couple things I want you to think about from this passage. Okay? The first one I want you to think about is that it was not evidence that was the reason that the great Sanhedrin did not believe what they were saying. It was not because of evidence or lack of evidence. Okay? Some people say that they reject Christianity because there's a lack of evidence. There's no evidence for it. Or the evidence isn't good enough for it. That's why I reject Christianity. Let's leave those people in today's society aside for just a second. We'll come back to them. Let's talk about these guys in the great Sanhedrin. What did they see? What did they see? Some of them 
probably were there when Jesus, as a young kid, 12 years old or whatever he was, came to the temple and amazed the religious leaders with what he knew of Scripture. They certainly were aware and likely had seen Jesus perform multiple miracles, including raising Lazarus from the dead. Then they killed him. And then hundreds of people were claiming to have seen him alive after he was dead. And that wasn't incredibly difficult to believe because they all knew for a fact that the tomb that was supposed to be holding his body was empty. The tomb that had been guarded by Roman soldiers was empty. And all these people are saying, I've seen him alive after he's dead. Then the apostles come and say, I've seen him alive. And then the power of the Holy Spirit is upon them. And they're doing signs and wonders, miracles, healings. These guys are seeing it. These guys knew the guy by the beautiful gate that couldn't walk. They would have seen him all the time. They knew who he was from the time he was born that he had this issue. And they knew that God had healed him through these guys who were the ones that were claiming Jesus was alive from the dead. The evidence was overwhelming for them. And they didn't believe. Their reaction was not, my Lord and my God, what can I do to be saved? They didn't believe. Now, why not? Why not? Why would you reject the truth? Especially when when the truth is claiming that it can save you from death. Why would you do it? Why would you do it? Remember, this was an act of their will. It wasn't an issue of, there's not enough evidence, I just can't get there. The evidence was there. They had to will themselves to not believe it. They had to invent for themselves some other way or some other reason why these things can be true. Why? Because to admit that it was true meant that everything had to change. It meant that everything had to change. Why do you buy a Starbucks every day when you know that if you took that $5 every day and put it into a reasonable investment account, by the time you retired, you'd have a million dollars? Why buy the Starbucks? Because you want your coffee now, right? Because you want the pleasure now. You don't don't want to think about what's in the future. You want to think about right now. And right now, these guys were on the top of the hill. These guys were on the top of the hill. Everybody respected them. Everybody looked to them. They were the leaders to submit themselves, to lower and humble themselves and submit themselves to Jesus Christ as God when they were the ones that had killed him. It meant they had to separate themselves from being the ones on top and humble themselves like these apostles who had to come before them, who they got to beat. Now they had to become like one of them. And it didn't matter how true it was, they were unwilling to do it. They wanted to be in charge. They wanted to be God, their own God, make their own decisions. And the serpent said to Eve, you can be like God, right? And she eats the fruit. And every moment of every day since then, humans have been saying, me, I want to be in charge. We don't think about the fact that to submit ourselves to Christ is actually freedom because he made you. He knows what's best for you and how you're going to be the best. But you continuously say, I don't mean you specifically, we as human beings continuously say, we know better. And even if we don't know better, I'd rather run it into the ground and be in charge of it than let you 
be in charge. And that's where these guys were. And to be fair, it would, it would have been difficult. You're talking about having to go from the top of the hill to the bottom to believe it. And therefore, it was to find any way to justify not believing. Okay? But here's the deal. There are people today who legitimately have issues with the evidence. These guys, they have no excuse. The evidence was in front of them. Let's not forget Peter and John had stood before them just before this with a man who had been healed standing right there being like, Jesus, and I'm walking now, right? They had seen this. They knew it. These men were believable when they said Jesus rose from the dead. How do I know they were believable? Because thousands of people were following Jesus now because of their witness. Remember, it wasn't like, hey, you're going to get, come join the church, $5 free Starbucks cards, okay? That's my thing. That was not their thing. It was, come join the church. You might get a beat down, maybe get killed. And people are flocking to it. Why is that? Because the testimony of the apostles was so convincing. It was so convincing. Right? So these guys had no excuse. These guys had the apostles standing in front of them who were claiming to be witnesses of the resurrection. And they had power to show that they were telling the truth. But there are people today who aren't in that situation. They don't have the original apostles standing in front of them. They have questions about whether scripture is true and so on and so forth. And that's fine. I hope that, that you come here, if that's you, for inquiry, to look into it. But I want to ask this question of anyone who struggles with that side of things, with the evidence side of things. Here's the question you need to ask yourself. If it was to be shown to you that the gospel of Jesus Christ was the most reasonable set of ideas on the market, if it was to be proven to you that it was more reasonable to believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died, rose again, can save you from your sins and make you right with God and give you a relationship with him. If that was the most reasonable thing to believe, would you believe it? Because if your answer is no, I still would not believe it. It is not evidence that you're struggling with. It's your own will. It's your own will. And people do. Most of us say, oh, that's impossible. If you really thought it was the most reasonable thing to do, they'd do it. Not true. It's a man named Friedrich Nietzsche. You may have heard of him before. And this is what he says. This is a quote from him. He says, It is now no longer our reason, but our taste that decides against Christianity. Let me translate that for you. It's not logic and science. It's our will. We don't want to believe in it. Nietzsche particularly hated the idea of the moral law of God. He couldn't stand it. He's saying, I don't care if it's true. My taste, my preference is to not believe it, and so I'm not going to. I'm not going to. And people have been doing that ever since. Now, usually they won't actually come out and say it. At least Nietzsche had the guts to admit, it's not about the evidence. I don't want to believe it. Most people will at least try to, try to poke holes or tell you that Theodos was, Josephus said he was here, and this one says he's here, and they'll try to find something like that, Right? They'll try to at least legitimize it because they're trying to convince themselves how they can reject the evidence and continue to be in charge of their own life. That's what they're trying to figure out. The next thing that I want you to think about is the example the apostles give us of fearlessness. Fearlessness. Have courage. Don't be a coward. 
Don't be a coward. There's a preacher named Charles Spurgeon. He's a great preacher sometime back. And, this, and he said this. Now I charge every Christian here to be speaking boldly in Christ's name, according as he has opportunity, and especially to take care of this tendency of our flesh to be afraid, which leads practically to endeavors to get off easily and to save ourselves from trouble. Fear not. Be brave for Christ. Live bravely for him who died lovingly for you. What's Spurgeon saying? He's encouraging us to be bold, to be fearless, and not to make excuses. Because we do. Sometimes we feel that prodding of the Holy Spirit to go talk to that person about Jesus. Or whatever it may be. And and instantly to our mind, we didn't know the second before, but now we realize just how many things we have to get done today. Right? I got to go pick up the thing. I don't have time to go talk to that person about Jesus. It's not going to work. Maybe tomorrow. Tomorrow will be better. I'll have more time tomorrow. Right? And we find excuses. This is what he's talking about. We find excuses. We find ways to not be brave, to not be courageous, and to be cowards about the gospel. He says this also. This continues to Spurgeon. Yet you are a coward. Yes. Put it down in English. You are a coward. If anybody called you so, you would turn red in the face, and perhaps you are not a coward in reference to any other subject. What a shameful thing it is that while you are bold about everything else, you are cowardly about Jesus Christ, brave for the world, and cowardly towards Christ. These are hard words. Hard words. Sometimes life is incredibly difficult. I went through something this last week that was incredibly difficult. To led me into despair even of life. I was having such a difficult time. I'm not going to tell you what it was um, because I'm going to keep that one. But it was very difficult. And I had to reach down and remember that my strength is not in myself. It's in Jesus Christ. And as I realized that, and as I leaned against him, even though I was going through something difficult, the fear went away. And the strength rose up. What do we have to be afraid of? What do we have to be afraid of? Nothing. Nothing. Christ is making us new. If we're in him, we're a new creature. The old things have gone. The new things have come. We're more than conquerors, right? If God is for us, who can be against us? And yet anxiety prevails. Anxiety prevails. When I was a little bit younger, in my early 20s, I had a serious anxiety disorder. Had to take pills for it and stuff, which is, you know, it is what it is. It was a serious anxiety disorder. What's anxiety? Just fear. We're afraid of everything. Anxiety disorders are prevalent, maybe one of the more prevalent issues that people face in our country today. Why? Why are we afraid? For those of us in Christ, what are we afraid of? I'm not just talking about having the strength to preach the gospel and to speak boldly about Christ. I'm saying you don't have anything to be afraid of. What is death to you? Why do the disciples, why do the apostles go back to the temple? Why? They knew they wanted to kill them. Why? Because they did not fear death. Why did they not fear death? Because they had seen Jesus alive. They knew they would live forever. They had his promise. 
They had his love. They knew that what was coming was better than what was going on right now. So much so that they did not count their life as valuable. Their very life. There are people who have been martyred, killed for loving Jesus and following him. There are people to this very day, maybe in this very hour, on this planet right now, who will be killed for professing faith in Jesus Christ and saying they're a follower of Christ. In some cases, betrayed by the people closest to them, their very wife or husband or mother or father or son or daughter will even be the one to do the killing because they profess Jesus Christ. That's that reaction that people have to him, right? It's not always positive. And yet, they think it's worth it because it is. It is worth it. The love of Jesus Christ breaks through all boundaries. The love of Jesus Christ will carry you through all fear. You do not have to be afraid. You do not have to be afraid of anything. We have Jesus. I'm just telling you. I've been there. I've suffered with anxiety. I've had those rough nights. In fact, Charles Spurgeon was one. The very guy who says this suffered seriously from anxiety disorder. And he would go into deep depression sometimes. And yet, it was Jesus. It was Jesus that maintained him. It was Jesus that maintained him. It's Jesus that maintains me. It'll be Jesus that maintains you. Do not be afraid. There is so much more for you. Jesus wants you to have life and have it abundantly. Abundantly. More, more, more life in him. Let's live as a church that's not afraid. Let's take this prescriptive example that the apostles have given us. Now let's do away with fear. You know what's going to draw people to the church and to the name of Jesus Christ more than anything? Is when you show them that because of his name you have no fear. There's nothing that will draw people faster than knowing that you're not afraid. Because they don't want to be afraid either. Because at the end of the day, those without Christ, they know the darkness is coming. They know the day is coming when they'll be dragged away. They know it. It's there. It's implanted in their very being. They understand that they're not right with God. They're afraid. If you live without fear, they will be drawn to the name of Jesus Christ. So let's live that way. Let's trust in his strength. Let's trust in his strength. This week, I'm going to give you a little homework assignment. I want you to read the eighth chapter of the book of Romans because it is a great glimpse of the kingdom of God, of the righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit that the kingdom of God is, where God is telling us, Paul is describing to us the power of living in Christ. So if you get a chance, how about this? Get a chance and read Romans 8 this week. Um, and be uplifted because we are going, we are, we have already won. We're already seated with him. We've already been justified. You're going to heaven if you know him and you follow him, period. It's happening. You have a lot to be happy about. You have nothing to fear. What a blessing to know that we never need to be afraid of anything. But that only happens as we trust in Jesus. So is that you? I sure hope so. But if not, and you're still on the fence about all this, come see us at Axe Church in Vancouver, Washington this Sunday morning. 
We'd love to help you figure this all out and find life. Get easy directions at axchurchnw.org or call 360-885-9000. Well, that's it for today, and please be sure to check out the next episode for much more with Pastor David Robinson here on Contemplate.